0: The following resource is from LMPC.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at LMPC.org give. A reading from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 12 through 26. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, The Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give to you. You shall be blessed above all peoples, There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which you knew, will he inflict on you. But he will lay them all on who hate you. And you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Your eye shall not pity them Neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders of the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out so will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. You shall not be in dread of them for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You may not make an end of them at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will give them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. And he will give their kings into your hand and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God, and you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and have war, for it is devoted to instruction. destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: Well, good morning again. My name is Chad Middlebrooks. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and it's great to be continuing our study together in the book of Deuteronomy. Last week, we learned how God sovereignly chose Israel to be his most prized possession out of all the nations on the earth. It was not because of any quality or any qualification in Israel that God chose to redeem them out of slavery in Egypt, for it was purely out of God's grace out of his steadfast love that he chose to set his affections upon the people of Israel and call them his own. And for this amazing grace and for this steadfast love shown to Israel by God, they were to respond in humble gratitude and faithful obedience to all that the Lord had done for them. And this morning we will come to understand, as we just heard read, we will see that God's election of Israel as his people is not contingent upon their obedience. But the blessings of God resulting from the covenant relationship that God has brought them into is contingent upon Israel's faithfulness and obedience to God. And so with that, let's pray and then we will jump into this text. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we ask that you would give us ears to hear your truth as your word is preached now. Father, help us to understand what we need to understand, to feel what we need to feel, And Lord, would your truth help us to see places where we are running from you, where we are rebelling. Father, would you give us faith even this morning when we can't see what you see and know what you know. Father, do this for your feeble and weak people that you love and that you care for. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if we are honest this morning, all of us are filled with fear. Increasingly so in recent days in the information age, our growing awareness of problems and unchangeable lack of agency can lead to skyrocketing anxiety and fear in our lives. Fear of failure, fear of monumental challenges that we face, fear of evil, fear of being duped by the media, fear of spin. One person once said, fear knocked at the door, faith answered, No one was there. Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was a pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church for a long time, he spoke to his daughter of that sort of faith that answers fear's knock at the door, only to find no one there. Barnhouse lost his wife when his daughter was very young. And so as he was trying to help his little girl and himself cope with the reality of the loss of his wife and her mom, Once they were driving around and he saw a huge moving van that passed by their car. And as it passed by, the shadow of the truck swallowed the car up. And the minister thought in that moment and said something to his daughter along these lines. He said, would you rather be run over by a truck or by its shadow? His daughter replied, well, by the shadow, of course. That can't hurt us at all. And Barnhouse replied, you're right. If the truck doesn't hit you, but only its shadow, then you're fine. Well, it was only the shadow of death that went over your mother. She actually is alive, more alive than even we are. And that's because 2,000 years ago, the real truck of death hit Jesus Christ. And because death crushed Jesus and we believe in him, now the only thing that can come over us is the shadow of death. And the shadow of death is but our entrance into glory. Rooting our lives in God's covenant love enables us to live by faith seeing shadows rather than living by fear seeing trucks. In this passage God will address our fears by providing an assurance an antidote and an admonition. Now remember Moses what he said in verse 11 that we looked at last week he said you shall therefore be careful to do the commandments and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And then in the first verse of what you just heard Joe read, Moses says, And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. Now, this statement may prompt a question in your mind. If God chose Israel by grace, what is the need for them to be obedient to the law? Is it by God's grace or is it by Israel's obedience? That Israel was brought into this covenant relationship with Yahweh. Well, despite what it may seem on the surface, there is no contradiction here. Moses is detailing what the Israelites would have been very accustomed to in that day, which was the nature of what is called a suzerain vassal treaty. In the ancient Near East, this was very common. In these treaties, the suzerain or the the ruler, the king, would actually take upon a vassal nation, a smaller nation, and he would promise protection for that smaller nation provided that the smaller nation, the vassal would return obedience and loyalty to the king. But there was also promised curses if the vassal nation didn't provide the loyalty and obedience to to the suzerain king. And so God's covenant love and promise to bring Israel into their new home was not dependent on anything, any worthiness of Israel. But the relationship had already been established by God. He had already redeemed them. He brought them out of Egypt, walking dry on the dry ground in the Red Sea to the other side. But the future enjoyment of the promised blessings and benefits of God were dependent upon Israel's fidelity to God and their obedience to all that he was asking of them. And beginning in verse 13, Moses then categorizes, God's abundant blessings that are afforded to Israel as they remain faithful to God, as they enter into this land. He says, the Lord will love you, bless you and multiply you. Sounds similar to the beginning of Genesis, doesn't it? When the mandate was given, be fruitful and multiply. Notice the blessings then that Moses lays out here. He says that, they, that all these blessings as we see through these verses, 12 through seven sixteen, they deal with fertility and the increase that is directly tied to this glorious land that they are about to enter. Here we see the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Remember what God promised Abraham. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, and as many as the sand on the seashore. God would bless Israel by multiplying their numbers greatly. He would bless the ground by providing grain, wine, and oil in rich abundance. And Moses says that Israel will be blessed beyond all the other nations on the earth. God was also not even gonna stop there in blessing them. He was gonna take away the things that could hinder the prosperity as they enter the land. Things like barrenness and disease and sickness, which were prevalent in Egypt where they just came from. And what's very interesting to note, though, is Moses' choice of words here in the Hebrew. Each of these words that are translated young offspring, grain, and wine, each of these are terms for actual names of the pagan fertility gods of the day. And so all of these things were what the pagan gods were supposed to deliver to those who bowed down to them. And there were many rituals that the pagan nations would perform to try to manipulate these fertility gods so that they could get what they wanted from them. But in reality, these gods could not deliver on what they promised. And this passage reiterates how all these elements of nature Fertility, crops, animals, all of these things are under the sovereign control of the one true and living God, Yahweh. And in Moses in verse 16, exhorts the people yet again, as we've heard many times throughout our study, that as they go into the land, they're to exhaustively demolish and destroy the people and the pagan idol worship that is there. And as they would do this, they would receive the fullness of God's blessing as they remain faithful to him. Now the idea that Israel's obedience is required to experience the fullness of God's blessing, it may seem antithetical to God's grace, but in reality it is not. Think of, for example, a marriage relationship where each person has covenant responsibilities to love the other person. Those responsibilities are not to be fulfilled in some kind of cold, mechanical way, but rather as an expression of the covenant bond of love upon which the marriage is founded and built. If someone loves you and you don't love them in return, that's not truly a relationship. And Jesus explains in verse in uh, John 14, these words, he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Israel's obedience to God's law was not a means to gain the covenant relationship, to gain salvation before God. But it was the means of maintaining the enjoyment of the covenant blessings that had already been established in the relationship. Israel was to obey God as an expression of their love and of their gratitude and their devotion to the one who had already redeemed them. John Calvin says, we cannot rely on God's promises without obeying his commandments. In other words, love of God and obedience to his commands are two sides of the same corn. What the scriptures teach us is that obedience to God out of thankfulness for his grace and salvation to us actually opens the floodgates to experiencing deeper expressions of God's love and of his blessing to us in Christ. David knew this and he writes about it in Psalm 8. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, what is man that you are mindful of him and that you care for him? yet you have made him with you crowned him with glory and with honor you have given him dominion over the works of your hands you have put all these things under his feet and now in Christ in the new covenant now his salvation extends to both Jew and Gentile and the promises are no longer connected to a land of Canaan See, by design, God's law was not given for his people to be saved, but rather so that his people could have a love relationship with God and live at peace with their God. God's law is a gift to us. It is not a threat to our joy and to our freedom. The law reveals how life is best lived under obedience to the Father. So let me ask us this morning, where have we neglected obedience? Or maybe we've given obedience to God and his law, but we've done it out of a wrong understanding of this love relationship with God. See, entrusting Jesus and laying down his life for sinners like ourselves, the only right response is one of complete surrender and obedience to our king. One pastor offers a very helpful illustration to distinguish between two types of obedience. He talks about a child and an employee. A child cannot obey his or her parents unless there's already been an action on the part of the parent to receive the child. In other words, you can't obey your parent unless the parent has either birthed you, a biological action, or they've adopted you, a legal action. But obedience is not the reason that your parents have you. The fact that your parents have you is the reason for your obedience. That's profoundly different. As an employee, he says, they think I better do my job well. Otherwise, I might be fired from this job. The employee is completely motivated out of rewards and punishments. I want my salary. I don't want to lose my job. I want a promotion. I don't want to be demoted. But this is not the motivation for the believer in Christ. The essence of a holy life is to obey as a child. One who has received the love of the Father unconditionally who knows the acceptance they have and therefore they can freely offer back obedience out of gratitude and thankfulness. Is your obedience to God this morning out of fear? Fear of what he might do or fear of what he might not do? Or is it out of favor that already rests upon you because of the work of the son on your behalf? Two dramatically different ways to offer obedience to God. Jesus himself in speaking of the blessings said in his sermon on the mount that those who seek peace, those who extend mercy to others, those who mourn over their sin and go back to God for forgiveness, those who pursue purity in their lives, and those who think of themselves less, they will experience the blessings of being in intimate fellowship and communion with the Father. So as we keep in step with the Spirit, as Paul uses those words in Galatians 5, As we walk by the power of the Spirit, we will experience greater measures of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, and self-control in all of our relationships with one another, with creation, and ultimately with God who created us for himself. Our obedience now in this life gains us the experience of that fellowship and intimacy, but it is only a foretaste of what is yet to come of the full unhindered experience of enjoyment of God's fellowship when he returns and we enjoy him in the full, fullness of the new heavens and the new earth. We taste it now, we will experience in full later as we obey the savior. Next we see God's love is shown in providing an antidote to fear of our foes. Look at the section, section verses 17 through 24, Moses addresses the elephant in the room, Because fear was the downfall of the first generation. They saw the enemies and thought they were too great. And so they forfeited entrance into the promised land. And God, knowing the hearts of his people, he anticipates the second generation's fear as they enter into the land. He knew they felt inadequate. He knew they felt outnumbered as they looked and saw the droves of people that were against them in the nations. But therefore, even though after providing them with this bountiful provision that he's promised them. He gives them even more incentive and confidence to enter the land and to take it for their own possession. Look at those verses, God calls Israel to remember. And he calls them to remember three things specifically. In verses 17 through 19, he calls them to remember his past redemptive acts. He calls them to remember what their parents had told them about the Exodus event, about the miraculous work that God had done to bring them out of slavery under Pharaoh's rule. But then secondly, God calls his people to remember his presence with them as well. Verse 20, God describes how he's gonna fight for his people. He's gonna send hornets on their behalf. You might remember when God used swarms of insects in the plagues against Pharaoh. And we don't know for certain whether these hornets were literal or figurative, but what we do know, the purpose of this was that God was telling his people, I'm gonna be with you and I'm gonna fight for you. And then he gives this promise on the heels of that reality. He says in verse 21, the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The emphasis here is on the powerful presence of God who would be responsible for delivering them to victory over the nations. Israel was to remember that God had united himself to them and he was ever present with them even in their battles. So they were to remember his redemptive acts in the past, his presence with them in the future in the present, but also to remember his faithful provision to them. Verse 22, Moses tells how God will gradually clear out the nations out of the land so that they can inhabit it. Well, why gradually? So that the land doesn't give over to the animals as they multiply and take over and doesn't give into chaos. God is, being prov- is providing for them even in that detail. And furthermore, God says he's gonna throw the nations into confusion so they can't present a counterattack. And he's gonna hand the kings of these nations over to them, which marks victory. Israel was to remember God's faithful work, his presence with them, and his provision. Now it's been said that fear is the fruit of forgetfulness. As we said two weeks ago, our battles that we're called to fight today are not against pagan nations. They're spiritual in nature, as Paul talks about. It's the world, the flesh, and the devil. But each of these enemies is way more powerful than we are. But God has blessed us with the gift of his spirit so that we can be led and strengthened by that spirit in each of our battles that we're called to face. And When our enemies are pressing in on us, we can often, just like Israel, we can forget God, can't we? We forget his grace. We forget our identity as his chosen child. We forget that he supplies us with everything that we need. We forget his sovereign, perfect plan, and we forget his eternal kingdom. When we forget the faithfulness of God in our lives, our focus can easily shift Onto the unsettling, uncontrollable circumstances that we're walking through. And this often results in fear, anxiety, and worry. What is it that you fear this morning? When you're awakened in the middle of the night, what does your mind run to? What situation are you currently walking through that that fear has you playing the what if game? We know that game. Well, if I do this, what if this happens? Or if I don't do this, what if that happens? And it just breeds further fear and insecurity and anxiety. Maybe your fear and anxiety that you're dealing with is with your children, where they're concerned, the choices they're making. Maybe it's with your physical health. Maybe it's with your marriage relationship or your finances. Or maybe it's a relationship you're dealing with at school or at work. Like Israel, we often fear the wrong thing. We fear man, we fear our circumstances, rather than fearing God, the all-powerful one who is over and administering our circumstances to us out of his loving kindness. Moses tells Israel and he tells us that the remedy for fear is a good memory. We need to remind ourselves daily of God's awesome glory, of his faithful provision and presence in our lives and of our unique identity as his chosen child. See, the purpose of remembering is that the God who has carried us and who has provided for us thus far is the same God who is with us right now in that circumstance that seems insurmountable to us. He has not left us. We don't remember just for nostalgia's sake and look back to a time where it was easier or more enjoyable. We remember so that our minds and hearts can be equipped and prepared and encouraged for what we're facing right now and what we will face in the future. If you're a parent, you've inevitably had this experience with your children when they're younger. As we know, children have incredible imaginations, but sometimes their imaginations can get the best of them. And so as they climb into their bed at night and the light grows dim, all of a sudden, that pile of toys in the corner or that stuffed animal that's on the dresser turns into a snarly toothed monster that's out to threaten their existence. And so what they see fills them with fear. And what do they do? They bolt out the door to find security and comfort in the arms of mom and dad. So what they see fills them in their hearts, their minds. But yet, in the comforting arms of mom and dad, they're quieted and they return back to their bed, they're tucked in, they're prayed over, and after a monster inspection is conducted, there's calm. But that calm is only briefly again, because fear enters yet again. This time, not fear of what they see, but now fear of what they don't see. Mom and dad's presence that has left the room. Now, I doubt that most of us have to fight off the fear of monsters as we climb into bed, but we all can in line with this and understand this like children like me like the Israelites because we're all filled with fear with what we see in our circumstances but we're also filled with fear with what we don't see that our God is being faithful to walk with us in the midst of every one of those circumstances see to remain obedient and faithful to God we must actively remember God's character and what he has done in our lives have you ever or recently sat down and taken pen to paper and written out the ways that God has been faithful to you, that you've seen his hand at work in your life. This will be a helpful exercise to us, especially in moments where we're fearing the unknown, where anxiety is coming over us, to look back and be reminded of the God who has been with us, who is with us and who promises to be with us forever. We have nothing to fear because God has provided his presence and his provision in abundant measure. Lastly, God's covenant love is displayed in providing an admonition to thoroughly eliminate the idols in our lives. See, it's no coincidence that Moses addresses idolatry coming off the heels of telling his people to remember. Forgetfulness is the fuel for idolatry. And in verses 25 and 26, Moses clearly restates that Israel is to be exhaustive as they go into the land, to put to death and put to ruin all the idols that are in the land. Moses says you're to burn them up, all of them. Don't even keep the silver or the gold because even that could be tempting for you and could ultimately ensnare you as you give yourself to those things. Now, any other nation defeating a, a rival nation, they would take those spoils for themselves and enjoy them. But Moses says, God tells you no because he knows the power that is in them. And that you will give yourselves over to them. And we read about this very thing happening in the book of Joshua with a man named Achan. After the fall of Jericho, there were spoils and Achan took some for himself. And God was angered by this sin. In Joshua 7, he tells us the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. Now before we think that God is some kind of demanding ogre with an ego trip, remember his character that we saw a few verses earlier. He's a God who is steadfast in his love for his children. He's a God who's faithful 1,000 generations. See, God knows the insidious nature and the power that is in the idols that are after our hearts. He knows that we will think that we have mastery over them when in fact the opposite is true As they get their teeth sunk into us and they, are, we own, they own us. God, it threatens, it grieves his heart when we would give ourselves up to something lesser when he provides in abundance himself. Moses says anything that's an abomination to God has to be rooted out. For Israel, everything began with the flow from their worship of God. and So they couldn't have anything that competed with their full devotion to the Lord. As God's people worshiped him alone, what they would find is that they would grow to love the things that God loved and hate the things that God hates. And for us here in the new covenant, that still holds true. Nothing has changed. We are to be uncompromising in setting our affections upon the Lord Jesus and him alone. Because we are to be set apart, to be in this world but not of it. And like Israel, we have to destroy the idols of our hearts so that our affections and our love and our worship are given to him alone. This is a lot easier said than done, isn't it? to the allure of what is is seen in creation can be extremely tempting over the unseen God and what he provides. But the unseen God has promised us something far better of inestimable value, the blessing of himself. Now to us though, as we read this, we think, how did the Israelites fail in this? All they were told to do is go in and destroy these idols. But it clearly wasn't easy because their hearts over time were deceived by them and they gave themselves to them. God knew that this was gonna be the case and he knows that this is the case for you and I too. See, idols in our day are far more nuanced because they are not as easily identified. We don't walk into someone's house and see an idol on the mantle. And good things can easily become idols for one person, but they're not necessarily an idol for another. And so we can't simply identify our idols by comparing ourselves to others. We actually have to do the hard, hard work of asking questions to ourselves, evaluating our own motives and our own loves honestly with the help of the Spirit. We have to ask ourselves, what are my core desires? In my idle moments, what does my mind run to think about? Is it notoriety that I'm after? Is it acceptance? Is it the new car, or the bigger house? Is it the exotic vacation? What do I spend my disposable income on? What gets my attention most? Scotty Smith said, he said, if we wanna identify the idols of our hearts, pay attention to your anger, your fear, your worry. What has become too necessary to you that you can't let it go? And if the answer to any of these questions is anything other than Jesus and his kingdom, we must repent and ask the spirit to replace these lesser loves with a greater love of himself that is satisfying and fulfilling. See, we were created to worship. We will become like what we give our hearts to. What are you giving your heart to this morning? As we pursue Christ in humble obedience as he calls us to, we will grow to love the things that he loves and despise the things that he despises we can be assured that as we strive to walk faithfully with him, we'll be able to enjoy all the blessings that he has afforded us through the work of his son. And when we do fail and we do face temptations and we give in to those temptations, we have to remember the faithfulness of our savior who promises us forgiveness because of his blood that he shed on the cross. True hope and power come from looking at Jesus. That's what makes the difference between seeing shadows or seeing trucks. Focus on self or faith in God who has worked for us in the past, who is with us in the present and who promises to deliver full redemption in the future. So let us remember all that God has so graciously done for us in Christ and let that fuel our gratitude, our obedience and our worship to the one who is worthy of our praise and of our very lives. Let's pray. Father, we admit that we are fearful, though you have given us evidence upon evidence to rest in your promises. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would embolden us, that we might believe not only to know that you have provided for us in the past, but you will provide for us in the future. Father, would you allow us to rest in the finished work of your Son, And would you allow us to boldly receive any and all circumstances you give in our lives, knowing it is from the good hand of our loving Father. And may may we be able to point to your faithfulness in our lives to others, so that they too might find rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Father, do this for our sake and for the glory of your name, we pray, amen.